Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. But you'll never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you, team. Thank you uh, so much for joining me here in the Freedom Hut. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure, as always. Um, do give a call if you would like. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. So the Republicans say they're going to get something done. Oh, well, look at that. Isn't that so sweet? Gave them a majority in the House. Gave them a majority in the Senate. And they may, in fact, do something. Now, this is the Senate. What will the House do? Will it get through the Senate? Who knows? No one really knows. All we know right now is that the health care debate is back up in full swing. You have politicians that are telling us different things, contradictory things about an issue that is inescapable for you and me. You can care or not care about what's going on in Venezuela as an American. You can care or not care about what's going on in North Korea, assuming we don't go to war with them and they don't fire a missile at us. Uh, There are a whole lot of things that don't really matter much to you. In fact, you could argue that there are any number of uh, domestic political issues that won't really affect you in one way or another, although that's usually a little bit trickier. Um, But health care absolutely will. If you're listening to this show and you are an American... Um, you will deal with the American health care system in one way or another. And the frustrations that we have with it are, just to review, largely based in government intrusion into the healthcare marketplace, the uh, abandonment of health care as, as a goods and services issue for a social justice issue. People are owed health care. Health care is a human right. There should be single payer. This is what you're hearing now. From the left, openly. You've been hearing it for a long time. It's the 100-year dream of the American progressive movement, of the left, of the rebranded socialists that now call themselves Democrat socialists under the banner of Bernie Sanders. Uh, They want to have government control of health care. And those of us who were warning back in the earliest days of Obamacare that it's just a matter of time before this would be too expensive, it wouldn't do the things they said, and they would then be calling for single payer. We're right. Here we are. Democrats are offering up single payer. Republicans are offering up a kind of meh, not too hot, not too cold, just right version of Obamacare. Let's call it what it is. This is a a states based instead of a federal government based version of Obamacare. But you'll notice as long as you have the federal government calling shots, this is government control of your health care. There will, in some ways, it's a little better. There's some savings. I know budget uh, budget people get really psyched about this, although the Congressional Budget Office will say bad things about it, and I'll get to it. One of the biggest problems is that you have, and this is a talk, I think we've already lost, unfortunately, this part of the propaganda battle. They will look at the number uh, that are insured right now under the, under the mandate, 
which says you have to buy my crappy Obamacare plan in this state or else you're going to have to pay a penalty to the IRS. They look at those people and say, well, if that goes away, they'll just they won't have they'll lose insurance. And they never say they might purposefully lose the Obamacare insurance and try to get some other form of insurance, which they would rather do anyway. Uh, They just say they'll lose insurance. And so that's how you get this number of, you know, 15 million will be. Uh, 15 million will be thrown off their insurance, 10 million, whatever it is. I mean, they're just guessing, I should know, right? They they don't know. Look at the original projections for where we'd be today when it comes to coverage in Obamacare. They just don't really know. They don't know. And so they're giving you best guesses, but we're supposed to base on all this. So we can get into, and and I want to, because I haven't really been talking to you about healthcare all that much recently. And now we are at an inflection point. The Senate Republicans are rallying behind this uh, Graham-Cassidy bill. At least it looks like uh, it's going to be close. Well, they haven't voted on this yet. And I want to tell you what it's supposed to do. But before we get to that, we should just deal with what the perception is here. We should deal with what exactly the public is hearing about this. And it's the it's the uh, Cassidy-Graham Bill or Graham Cassidy, I don't know, does one unnecessarily have to go first? But the fight as of right now, at least as of today, over should it be single payer or should it be some version of states involved in an Obamacare like scheme? Uh, single payer versus a states based health care system, we'll call it that for now, is really a debate between uh, Senator Cassidy from Louisiana and Jimmy Kimmel, late night comedian. Oh, haven't you noticed a trend, whether it's Colbert or Kimmel or Oliver or th- these are the people that have sway among millennials, among progressives, among Democrats on political issues. And they they abandon what I think is their greatest obligation, which is to amuse, entertain and uh, and lighten things up a bit for us. They don't want to do that. They don't want to make you laugh. Jimmy Kimmel's not in the make you laugh business so much as, at least on this, he's in the tell you what you should think about health care and you're a bad person if you disagree with him business. So you got Senator Cassidy, who's a doctor. Interesting that you've got a senator who's actually a doctor who has some strong opinions on this and is trying to push forward this bill. And you've got Jimmy Kimmel. So it's Cassidy versus Kimmel. Let's get into uh, round one on this uh, first you have Kimmel listing his version this is a late night comedian but he's got millions and millions of viewers this will this affects the perception of this in fact I see a piece on Politico which is a political website for people who think the Democrats are the only real political party worth paying any attention or worth listening to in this country uh, Politico listed Jimmy Kimmel as more right than Dr. Cassidy Senator Cassidy but here's what Kimmel says about this health care bill, which is possibly going to be an, a, an overhaul, at least, of Obamacare. Bill Cassidy, but when he was on this publicity tour, he listed his demands for a health care bill very clearly. These were his words. He said he wants coverage for all, no discrimination based on pre-existing conditions, lower premiums for middle class families and no lifetime caps. And guess what? The new bill does none of those things. Coverage for all? No. In fact, it'll kick about 30 million Americans off insurance. Pre-existing conditions? No. If the bill passes, individual states can let insurance companies charge you more if you have a pre-existing condition. 
You'll find that little loophole later in the document after it says they can't. They can and they will. But will it lower premiums? Well, in fact, for lots of people, the bill will result in higher premiums. And as far as no lifetime caps go, the states can decide on that, too, which means there will be lifetime caps in many states. So not only did Bill Cassidy fail the Jimmy Kimmel test, he failed the Bill Cassidy test. He failed his own test. Okay, so a few things on this. First of all, he Cassidy told him what he would like. And there are a lot of things that I would like. And if somebody asked me, I would say, sure. You know, I would like everybody to, you know own a wonderful home and their kids go to great colleges and have great food to eat. Everything'd be great. But because that doesn't happen, doesn't mean that I'm a bad guy, right? I mean, there are lots of things that the Senator I'm sure would like and would like to pass in legislation. That's just not realistic. Uh, but you'll notice that at the core of the Kimmel critique here, and it's like he's done this, this all comes from the fact that he had a son, uh, a baby boy who had to have heart surgery and he had a very he had a very emotional and uh, and it was a highly sympathetic moment for anyone watching across the country, but where he was praising this hospital and saying that you know he uh, he wants everyone to have the same coverage that his his son had. At some point you run into the cold hard economic realities of okay, we can give everybody emergency care and we already do and that's been the case for a long time. But because we're going to address anyone's life-saving needs in this country as a, as a matter of law, anyone who comes into an emergency room cannot be turned away, does that also mean that people have no financial responsibility for the care that they receive? Does it mean that all of their care should be free? Who is to pay for everyone's free care? That's just going to be the, the 1%? They don't make enough money. The amount of money that would be required to do what now Democrats like Bernie Sanders say they want to do with our health care. And not just Sanders, Pelosi. you got all these people now getting their base fired up about this. It would be ruinously expensive for the rest of the economy. And at the core of this, you have a desire to elevate or you have a favorable impression of the federal government, of the centralized power of the federal government over the states. This is now going to turn into a federalism discussion. That's where the health care is headed right now. I should note that the state being in charge is perhaps a little better than the federal government being in charge. And that's what Graham Cassidy would do. So wherever you are listening across the country and we're on a, a, a over 100 affiliate stations all across the country. So there's a lot of a lot of territory covered wherever you are. Your state would have greater autonomy. It, it is a, a an, an homage to federalism to determine what are acceptable coverage levels. And I don't think that that many states would take a draconian scorched earth approach to this. In fact, places like California and New York, for example, where I'm coming to you from, would be in a position to push for even you know more benefits and even more coverage. Right. Because coverage is a fancy way of saying finding things, finding ways to have other people pay for other people's stuff. Because they're not improving or increasing the ability to deliver care. This is all about shifting around the cost. Who pays? Someone's got to pay. Democrats have this magic formula of the taxpayer pays, but that's actually not even really the formula as we have crossed over into $20 trillion of debt. The formula is future generations will pay. And that's how they maintain their power now. That's how the Democrats get away with this, and plenty of Republicans go along with them. What really caused the failure of the last skinny repeal or the last effort to get Obamacare light, which uh, John McCain was a decisive vote in the Senate against? It was that there were some senators who 
wanted the goodies to keep flowing to their states. Federal dollars. You get more from the give, uh, get more from the government than your state gives. People who are politicians like this. They like to bring things to their home states because they want to continue to get elected. But they, they see this is one of the issues here. And, and this is a way, I think, of, of trying to bring this discussion back to home plate, back to the center. Because I know there's so many directions that I want to go in because there's a lot, a lot happening with this. But complexity is a huge part of the problem. They, they construct all of these ways to hide what's really happening. So then it's easier for them to tell you what's not happening, but it sounds good. Right. They, they can tell you that they're going to cover. They don't cover everybody. Jimmy Kimmel saying that 30 million people are going to lose coverage. That's just absurd. I mean, of course, Republicans are not going to uh, push forward a bill that leaves 30 million people without health insurance uh, just because, you know, at its root, you have a, a lot of the Democrat stuff. A lot of the Democrat theory on health care is just that Republicans don't like poor people and don't want poor people to have health care. Well, I just wonder when will they understand that there are a lot of Republicans who are working folks who uh, don't support Obamacare because they have been getting just nailed by really high premiums. They've gotten thrown off their insurance despite one of one of the biggest lies of Obama's presidency, in some ways the most obvious lie. It's actually one of the we start the show. If you like your plan, you can keep it. It's the top of the show just to remind everybody to remind them why the lectures from certain cable news networks about how Donald Trump needs to be more truthful. People are like, yeah, you know, we don't really care what he thinks about the crowd size. Obama lied about my health care plan and he lied. He didn't make a mistake. He lied because it was easier to sell. They're lying to you now about the health care uh, system as it stands under Obamacare. You don't even have the full implementation of Obamacare and it's had all these problems and they've had to push it back and push it back. And ultimately, Ultimately, what is Obamacare? It is the middle class subsidizing uh, people that are dependent on the state for health care in the form of health care welfare, which is Medicaid. But it's middle class taxes, middle class tax dollars that go to that. So it's the middle class subsidizing uh, the I don't know. I don't like the term working class, whatever you'd the low, low earning households, low income households. But middle class households are struggling themselves, right? Because they're they're trying to prepare for the future and deal with their own economic anxieties. But that's what Obamacare really is. I, I haven't even we gotta get back to Cassidy versus Kimmel. There's some more there's some more here. Because I think it's this at the heart. You got the Hollywood version of Democrats just want to give everyone care, they want to take care of everybody, and and they want to be the nice guys, and Republicans are these mean, you know, guys wearing pinstripe suits and back rooms. Lots of cigar smoke, cutting deals to make sure that poor kids can't get health care coverage. It's just a caricature. It's not reality. Obamacare stinks. It's not good. Doesn't do what they said it was going to do. So we're trying to do something better. We'll look at what it does. And by the way, we'll also talk about uh, the latest on the invest. I don't know. I got a lot. Latest on the investigation, Hillary's book tour, Obama's speaking tour, and oh, so much more. And I never imagined I would get involved in something like this. This is not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is eating pizza, and that's really about it. <laughs> but we can't let him do this to our children and our senior citizens and our veterans and, or to any of us. And by the way, before you post the nasty Facebook message yeah, saying so, I'm so politi- This is the classic, the classic liberal maneuver, which is have a comedian make a policy argument 
and then to inoculate himself against any possible criticism, just say, well, but I'm just a comedian, man. I mean, Jon Stewart was a master of this. This is what he always would do. You know, let me lecture you on the Iraq war. Everyone who thought that we should go to Iraq is an idiot. But, you know, uh, but oh, wait, hold on a second. There were uh, I, I'm just a comedian. You know, the, 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 the people before my my show are just puppets doing crank phone calls or this was the game. This was what he did. On, that's how The Daily Show became a power. Same thing with Bill Maher show. All these different shows. Oh, I'm a comedian. I want to talk about I want to put my serious hat on. But the moment I start to lose, it's. You know, throw if they can throw in an expletive. It's if it's on on cable, but you know, otherwise, just oh, I'm just a comedian. You know, ha ha ha. I have something funny to say now. Well, you know, which is it? I, I hate this formulation. You see it all the time. It was big on the Daily Show, and and for Kimmel to say this isn't his area, he certainly seems to think it's his area. He thinks he knows more about this than a an MD and a sitting U.S. senator is calling him a liar too. This is the policy discussion he's having. This isn't about anything else. Uh, but, you know, it's all about being funny. And, yeah, I eat pizza. Right? They, they do this all the time. Uh, you know, you, you either put on you either put on the big boy shoes and you get to have a real adult discussion and debate and stand behind the positions that you're taking or make people laugh. Don't think that you get to do both simultaneously and use one to get out of the other. Well, liberals love this. This is why they love these these comedy political shows, because it's it's it creates a an environment where they always win, because even when they start to lose, then it becomes a joke. So it's a it's a it's a safe space, really. That's what comedy political shows or comedy uh, comedians who take on political issues for liberals. That's what it becomes. It's an inherent safe space. It's a giggly safe space. You get to giggle and you're safe. And oh, everyone else, Republicans are so dumb. Republicans are so dumb. Ooh, okay, maybe I'm going to lose on that issue. So we're just funny here. He he he. Uh, but he is also telling people that uh, well, he, he's doing the usual, which is bashing Congress, which everyone does that. I do that too because Congress deserves to be bashed. But he says that everyone needs to read this whether people can afford to keep their children alive or not. Most of the Congress people who vote on this bill probably won't even read it. And they want us to do the same thing. They want us to treat it like an iTunes service agreement. And this guy, Bill Cassidy, just lied right to my face. Do you believe that every American, regardless of income, should be able to get regular checkups, maternity care, etc., all of those things that people who have health care get and need? Yep. So, yep, is Washington for nope, I guess. You notice, notice the question. Do you believe all those things? Cassidy doesn't not believe that. And I don't even think that his health care bill is going to be all that great. In fact, here's what Republicans are hoping that we don't all spend time to figure out and, and think about. It throws a lot of money, of taxpayer money, at the states. So instead of the federal exchanges, you're going to have the states with exchanges that have hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of your money given to them. So we'll get into this and uh, we'll talk about the Cassidy side of the argument and uh, much more. When we come back from this break team. Stay with me. Says the taxes are still in place. So how is your bill better than what is already there today? 
We, we, we repeal the penalties the ind upon the individuals who don't purchase insurance. Upon employers, we repeal that penalty. We repeal the medical device tax and the over-the-counter tax. We save $134 billion. We give power back to the states so that states can come up with a system that works for the state, giving power to the patient. We drive a stake in the heart of single-payer health care plan. If somebody votes against our bill, they're voting for Obamacare. Mm. If, you're voting for, if you're voting for our bill, you're voting for power to the patient, power to the state. All right, a few things there. I, I wanted to, that was uh, Senator Cassidy, Louisiana, and I wanted to play that. Uh, I'm curious if uh, what our New Orleans New Orleans listeners uh, think about this. Um, so, if you want, let me know. Or if you can't call in, you can go on Facebook.com/slash Buck Sexton and tell me what you think of Cassidy's role in all this and whether you think he's a good senator or not. I'm just wondering. But hmm, a few things here. One is to say power to the patient, power to the state at the end. That doesn't that doesn't really add up. That doesn't really go. Um, it's it's a little bit much, I think, to suggest that somehow you can do both of those things. I mean, you can make it a little bit better. Uh, you can make it a little bit less onerous by putting it at the state level. But. If you're really going to have the patient in charge, that means that it's going to be a a private sector driven solution. It's not going to be the states deciding what the individual solution will look like for healthcare. I mean, what role you see this this becomes a philosophical debate. And I know we should bring it back to uh, what the real day to day results of all this will be. But on a philosophical level, the government shouldn't be in the business of telling people uh, or telling individuals uh, what they can and cannot buy shouldn't be in the business of telling healthcare providers what they should and should not be uh, forced to provide. This isn't about health insurance. That's always been a big lie. This is about healthcare. It's not about insurance, really, especially when you get rid of pre-existing conditions, because now you're talking about uh, events that have already happened. You're insuring against something that's already happened. And we've, we've talked about this. This is I'm buying. I'm buying fire insurance for my house after the house is burned down, but it's insurance. No, it's not. Now it's just a subsidy or it's just a payment. Uh, but the problem at the root of all of this, uh, what Cassidy says, what Kimmel says, the one thing that binds all this together is that right now, majority of Americans like the idea that somebody else is going to pay for their health care. We do not have enough faith in the free market. We do not have enough faith in uh, market forces as and I know you may be saying I do buck but as a country right now we don't we want somebody else to be picking up the tab we think that there would be no way that medicine could be cheaper better you know more affordable more widely distributed uh, than it is in, in, if we don't have the government involved right so that's the basic the basic erroneous assumption in all of this People, they want, everyone wants someone else to pay. And I get it. I've gotten used to this too. You go to a doctor, you pay 20 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever, a hundred, whatever it may be, which depends on your plan, right? But you know that it doesn't cost that. And the moment you go without insurance, and I've been somebody who's had to deal with navigating the world of uh, the medical community and trying to get care as a patient without any insurance whatsoever. Uh, and that that is an eye-opening experience, let me tell you, because medicine is way too expensive when you don't have somebody else involved right i mean a five a five minute visit to a specialist in new york city 
for a script for penicillin or something, which you know you need and it's all you need and you could have gotten yourself, will cost you like five or six hundred bucks. Easily. Maybe more. For five minutes? I mean, come on. That's just not that's just not uh based in market realities once you take out that there's so much distortion going on because of all the government mandates, because of all the uh, government involvement in insurance. You should just be able to buy the insurance plan you want to buy. And insurers should offer plans that are straightforward, and that's it. And we'll see, uh, you see how it goes from there. But that doesn't allow for the massive redistribution of wealth that is at the core of what the progressive left in this country really wants on health care. So and Cassidy defended himself, I should note, against the accusation from Jimmy Kimmel. Here's what he had to say. And we protect those with pre-existing conditions. If a state applies for a waiver, it specifically says the state must establish that there is adequate and affordable coverage for those with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. Are, are you saying Jimmy Kimmel's wrong? I'm saying that if he understands the bill, one, he is wrong. It will increase coverage and it will protect those with pre-existing conditions, particularly for those states who have not uh, had the benefits of Medicaid expansion. We help those in those states, and those are millions of Americans. Um, I guess we'll see. I don't even know if this is going to make it through, though. I think that they have squandered so much political momentum at this point, and the public is so weary of Republicans in the Congress not following through on promises that this just it just may not happen. And it is really uh, it is really frustrating um, to watch this play out. Donald Trump, though, is he's he's got faith. He says very good chance. So there's that. It's great. I think it has a very good chance. Obamacare is a disaster. It's failing badly. You look at the rates, you look at what's happening with premiums for people that can't afford Obamacare. It's been a catastrophic situation. I believe that uh, Graham Cassidy really will, will do it the right way, and it is doing it the right way. It has tremendous support from Republicans. Certainly, we're 47 or 48 already senators, and a lot of others are looking at it very positively. I want everyone to remember that soundbite for when inevitably there's a lot of finger-pointing that occurs. If this thing doesn't make it through uh, through the, the Senate or if it doesn't make it through, uh, from the Congress onto the president's desk to get signed, and then they're going to say, oh, well, Trump didn't do enough to sell it, and, and it turns into a— because everyone's responsible, no one's responsible, right? Because everyone blames everyone else, nobody actually gets blamed. That's what they're going to try to do if this doesn't work. Uh, the particulars of the bill, I, I mean, I, I was reading reading uh, all the uh, best people on this today and their analysis of what it does. The long and the short of it is that it gets rid of the individual mandate. It um, gets rid of the employer mandate. It pulls back some taxes. And it gives a whole bunch of money to states to set up exchanges. And so the state. So, you know, if you live in, uh, you know, the the great state of Nebraska, for example, you won't be buying a, a federally set up health care plan in Nebraska. Nebraska will be determining what Nebraskans have to get for their health care. Right. So is that better? Yeah, I, I think it's it's better. Is it what we were promised? Is it a full repeal? Is it removing the redistributive mechanisms from the healthcare system, which allow bureaucrats to determine who gets what, when they get it, and how much, you know, how much they get? No. It just means that you're going to have to, dealing with that at the state level. 
The federal government still plays a big role, though. And in fact, as currently written, the secretary of HHS, Health and Human Services, will be able to override the existing system and say, more money has to go to this state. We need to shore up the exchange in this state. So, you know, more money is going to go to it. There's there's still hundreds of billions of dollars of taxpayer money that will be given to states to create health insurance, uh, a health insurance system within that state. Again, I mean, is this a little bit better? Maybe it would be interesting to see how the uh, blue states versus the red states stack up on this and who's doing a better job. Federalism is supposed to work that way. Right. But when you have the federal government always backstopping and unable to send more cash infusions, you're just going to have different states trying to game the system and get more money out of it. Complexity is the enemy of better health care for you and for me. Bureaucratic entanglements and 100 page long bills and all this stuff. These are the these are enemies of transparency. They're enemies of clarity. They are enemies of you being able to go see a doctor who is in a competing free market situation with other doctors in your area, who's trying to deliver the best services possible and who's going to get paid for those services without having to jump through all these different hoops and follow all this different paperwork. And, you know, everyone feels the grind of this. Everyone feels the, the difficulties of the current healthcare system in one way or another. And those who are, in a sense, freeloaders on the current system because they receive health care uh, welfare of one kind or another, whether it's, you know, there's any number of ways that that can be the case. I think they have an anxiety. I'm sympathetic for them, too, because there's the anxiety of, well, we're just living. I'm getting health care at the government's whim. This could change. You know, they could. And more importantly, for those especially who are getting Medicaid, it's not even good health care. The best doctors don't take it. A lot of doctors won't take it. A lot of hospitals won't take it. So. Look, it's an enormously complicated situation, which is an understatement. And and I feel like uh, this is deja vu all over again with where we are with Republicans on this now. I don't know if it's going to go through. My sense is that it probably won't. And at this point, opinions of Congress are so low that they're already in the basement. There's really nowhere for them to go. And we'll move on to tax reform, which they will do. They will get something through on tax reform. Because that's the donor. The people who write checks to all these politicians to keep them in office, they want tax reform. So on both sides, Democrat and Republican, that's where the, the rubber starts to meet the road, as they say. Uh, but I'm not I am not hopeful on this uh, on this Graham Cassidy thing. I don't really see it. I don't really see it happening. Just remember what I told you about the debt ceiling and the, and the government shutdown. I was like, nope, not going to happen. I'm not quite there with Graham Cassidy, but. You can see the same talking points are being arrayed against it. They're going to kick all these people off their insurance. Pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions. Oh, wait, one more thing. You'll notice that no matter what the discussion is, Democrats immediately go to a very small, on policy matters, they go to a very small segment of the overall problem, of the overall issue, and they find one that is, uh, they're able to, use as emotional manipulation and emotional blackmail for the rest of the issue. Any number of, of things I can point to where this is the case. It's obviously true with healthcare, where all we ever talk about are pre-existing conditions. Meanwhile, less than 1% of the country truly has what is a pre-existing condition. So why don't we just fix healthcare for 1% of the country and then leave the rest of it alone and make it better instead of, you know, but they don't want to do that because they want control. 
but we're talking about pre-existing conditions on health care. We talk about DACA for amnesty and for immigration. And, you know, when we talk about uh, abortion, all the left ever wants to talk about is what about rape and incest? What about rape and incest? I mean, they always focus on these very statistically uh, minor areas of the problem as a means of bullying everyone and, and emotional blackmail for, for all the rest of it. And you're seeing that with healthcare. It's always about pre-existing conditions. What about just you and me and trying to get health care? What about just normal Americans trying to get their health care and fixing it for people with pre-existing conditions as part of fixing it for everybody instead of we got to all suffer under the same bureaucratic monstrosity together? It's just, uh, you can tell, I get fr- it's very frustrating. And have you have you been sold on this? Let me let me ask you that. Have you been sold on Graham Cassidy as a good a good option, a good bill? Who even knows what's in this thing? I don't even think the senators know what's in it. They're like, yeah, sure. For the states, federalism. Yeah. You know, talking about budget projections in 2026. No one knows what the budget is going to be in 2026. I know. I, I'm mm, health care. I just want to sit here and tell you all the healthcare stories where I can see how frustrating the system is for for other people, for me, for... You just want to avoid it, and that's not the way it should be, but you just want to... If you can avoid our healthcare system in this country, for the most part, uh, if you need really, you know, if you need high levels of care, you want to avoid it. Um, and if you can't, well, then you got to deal. But all right, all right. Uh, I want to move to... I guess we'll do some of the latest on the, on the Russia stuff. I mean, the GOP healthcare bill vote, they're saying it'll happen next week, so we can't do this... I think we've gotten as far as we can get on this today. Maybe some Russia stuff. I'm going to talk to you about the uh, campus rape frenzy. Uh, the author of that book, The Campus Rape Frenzy, will be joining us in a little bit to talk about that. we got Hillary and Barack. Uh, Hillary on a book tour, Barack on the speaking tour. That will be coming up. And uh, maybe some missile defense and North Korea talk. That will also be interesting, I think. And your thoughts on, are Republicans going to get it done? Are Republicans going to make it happen? 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. All right, we've got Evelyn in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Evelyn. Hi, Buck. I have three comments, short ones, regarding um, our discussion. First, I do believe in federalism. And Jason Lewis has a great book on federalism. So if people don't know what that is, they can read his book. Second, I think the problem that the health care program didn't work were two significant people. Um, Mitch McConnell, who doesn't know how to run his job, and uh, John McCain, who should have stayed home. Then we would have had something. Third, the problem is we have become an entitlement country. And that's the mindset of this country. Everything for free. And I've tried to tell people that every freebie you get, you're giving up the freedom in some way. And I, I can't convince people about that enough. I have a friend who's a school teacher, and he's teaching personal finance at a high school. And uh, several of the kids said, I'm not making up a budget for food or housing. Why should I? I'm going to be on food stamps and welfare. So they're growing up thinking that's a way of life. It's upsetting. It really is. This country has to start getting more, uh, you know, more of a thinking that anything can be accomplished with a little 
enthusiasm and and wanting to be successful, and they're just not doing it. Well, Evelyn, I appreciate appreciate your... I'm sorry, go ahead. (laughs) I'm getting off on my soapbox. I'm sorry. No, that's that's quite all right. I I like your can-do attitude and and your spirit. Thank you, Evelyn. Shields High. Lonnie in West Virginia listening on the Blaze app. What's up? Hey, Buck. How you doing, bud? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. Hey, you know, nobody ever talks about this, but... For years, before Obama came up with his Obamacare, you could always purchase insurance. Not Nothing ever said that you couldn't go buy an insurance policy from an insurance company, okay? So he, he never really made it affordable. They just got together and decided that it was a way to make more money off of everybody else in the country. And number two... Pre-existing illnesses, I don't know whether you know this or not, no one ever talks about this either, uh, um, because I've had this myself through my insurance companies at work, that only lasts for a year. Um, If you have a pre-existing illness, they won't cover you for the first year, but after that, they pick that up and start to cover that. So uh, I don't know. I don't think that I don't think that's correct, Lonnie. But I uh, maybe with some insurers yeah. that was the case. But I know there are people, and we hear about the cases all the time, where individuals cannot get any insurance of any kind because they have a massively expensive uh, pre-existing condition. But well, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've had pre-existing conditions before and changed jobs. And one, if I give them a proof of credible coverage, showing you had insurance before they'll cover you one other time they said no for the first year after a year we'll cover you so well we'll see man the pre-existing conditions part of this is uh just one slice of a much larger pie team will be back with the manafort stuff thanks for being here team um phones are open if you want to give a call 844-900-BUCK 844-900-2825 um Last hour, it kind of turned into if we were coming up with a theme here in the hut. uh, Last hour was really about federalism, I guess. And that can be for some people a bit of a dry topic. It's not it's not sexy to sit around and talk about federalism all day, but it's important. And that's that's now that the shift that is happening in healthcare has to do with state control versus federal control, although with Graham Cassidy, there's too much federal control of what the states can do and some of the underlying uh, economic uh, issues with it are the same. So anyway, I, I want to move on from uh, from because it's going to be voted on next week. And so this will be a recurring a recurring theme of the show. But federalism was the last hour. Part of this hour, at least I want to talk to you about sovereignty which is a, a term that you would think is is pretty straightforward for most folks, right? Sovereignty. You know, nations should have sovereignty, should be able to uh, exert its sovereignty. And yet there are some people that out there who are put off by the notion of sovereignty, right? Sovereignty is the the authority of a state to govern itself. That's all it is. For a state to be a state, but sovereignty makes some people feel ill at ease. So can I, can I put a hold on that for a second? We're going to talk sovereignty this hour, which I'm not trying to make this into a, 
poli sci 101 class, although hopefully I would make Professor Hadley Arkey's proud if I did so, my old thesis advisor. Um, I, to, I don't know if I ever told you this. You know, Hadley, you're like, what are you talking about, Buck? This was my college thesis advisor for political science, who was the only conservative, really the only open conservative on campus. And uh, Hadley was an interesting guy, a little sometimes a bit, a bit quirky, I think you could say. Very fond of bow ties. He was a, a snappy, a snappy dresser. Um, but I remember thinking that, you know, in all the stuff that he did, I was told a story that he once convinced one of his, I believe she was a thesis mentee, but I'm, I'm not that part of it. That detail may be incorrect. But he convinced one of his students um, who in college had become uh, had become pregnant uh, and was wrestling with what to do and convinced her to have the baby. And I remember thinking about Hadley, you know, the guy's been, the guy's been teaching for, I don't know, he had been teaching when I was there for like 30 something years. I mean, he, I think he, I think I went to like his 50th, a 50th celebration of teaching here in New York city. And he finally retired. But of all the stuff that Hadley had done, all the writing, all the conservative philosophy, all he has, he has, written many books they're dense just fyi be prepared if you decide to tackle an arkies it's spelled a-r-k-e-s you want to tackle an arkies uh work it's it's not it's not beach reading but he at least he at least as a professor he at least saved one life that's it's better than a lot of people get to do in their jobs and i always thought that was uh that was when i really that was honestly when I, i was a freshman when i found that out and that was one of the reasons why i signed on with this guy and uh, I wasn't one of his most devoted mentees by any stretch, but he was my thesis advisor. And I just remember thinking that uh, when it when it came down to it, he did a good thing. He did the right thing. He did a good thing. And uh, he changed more than one life, really. But he at least saved a life. Um, but I digress. Uh, what I wanted what I wanted to mention to you, because I'm bouncing around here a bit. As a follow-up to that story yesterday, we're, we're going to get to sovereignty but uh, and how it is a problem for some folks in the media, and it, we'll get there in a, in a moment. But there was a follow-up to that story in uh, at Georgia Tech where somebody, uh, where, where this individual, Scout Schultz, uh, walked around with something that looked like a knife, called the police, police came, he kept yelling, kill me, kill me. He had a knife in his hand. This is suicide by cop. It is a very tragic, unfortunate, but it is by no means the fault of the officers involved. Uh, they, in, Unless they wanted to risk their own lives. Now it's easy to say, well, it wasn't a knife and he was just disturbed. And you don't know. And having spent a lot of time working alongside law enforcement officers with plenty of stories about what at the NYPD here in New York we called EDPs, emotionally disturbed persons, it can it's there are a lot of risks and you know you you think you're going to be uh helping somebody out and and you know they're no threat and all of a sudden they're coming at you with a sharpened screwdriver but those are the kind of things that happen to cops that are are dealing with in these situations so when you when you tell somebody drop the knife drop the knife and they're yelling and screaming and they won't drop it and they keep walking the uh window you have and this is one of the problems too is civilians you know have watched so much uh, we people have seen so much TV, and they'll say things like, "Oh, well, you know, shoot the person. Why don't they shoot them in the leg?" Right? Well, first of all, you, as those of you listening who understand ballistics know, it's very easy to actually bleed out if you get shot in the leg and it hits your femoral artery. 
uh, but if you shoot somebody in the leg, then it's even more likely they're going to come at you. They're not going to. That's not going to put them down necessarily and stop the threat. And the officer's life is at risk now, right? Or, or, or continues to be at risk. Um, so it's it's a terrible situation. I'm not trying to in any way um, mitigate how how sad it is. It's sad for the officer too, as I said. But then you see the way that it's described out there in the media. And I just saw this today. And this is from Glad, uh, which is the uh, the biggest uh, gay and lesbian transgender rights organization that I'm aware of. Whenever there's a big story about anything in the LGBTQ community, they go to the they go to Glad, G-L-A-A-D, um, which is an advocacy group. And from their official account, this is how they. Uh, this is how they describe that story that I told you yesterday when I gave you all the details that I knew when I tried to present it. I tried to present the facts objectively and then, of course, gave my analysis. But here's what Glad writes. An LGBTQ campus organizer at Georgia Tech lost their life at the hands of campus police during a mental health crisis. That makes it sound like cops were acting wild, doing bad stuff, and somebody who was really in need of help was the victim of police. I mean, let, let me read this to you again. An LGBTQ campus organizer, this uh, individual, Scout Schultz, lost their life, notice the use of, a, of plural pronouns here, at the hands of campus police during a mental health crisis. Now, that's not, strictly speaking, a lie, but it certainly misconstrues the situation. It, it, it doesn't present it in a, in, a, in a way that someone comes, away, comes from reading this thinking, okay, this was a situation where there, uh, the officers were in reasonable uh, fear for their own safety. And no, no, no. This was bad police. That's what, that's what this, you read this and you don't know any better and you don't see it anywhere else and you don't think critically about news stories. You see the biggest gay, lesbian, transgender advocacy group in the country making it sound like a person who was in mental distress, who is LGBTQ, was killed by police just because. And that's not what happened. And whenever we try to understand why there are these uh, movements that pop up across the country, and Black Lives Matter was a rebranding of a previous anti-cop movement uh, that was around during the days of Occupy Wall Street, in fact, I was going through old photos that I took of Occupy Wall Street the other day because I'm doing some research on on uh, on Antifa. And there was a uh, how many I remember seeing a banner. How many people of color have to be killed by cops before you hate the state? That was what the this huge banner at one of these protests. How many people of color have to be killed by cops before you hate the state? That was in 2011. So Black Lives Matter is just a a, a rebranding of the. Uh, really was originally a, a police brutality movement, but it's actually an, it's largely anti-cop. Uh, but when you think about why college kids across the country have this attitude towards police, it's because of the way that organizations like GLAAD and different media networks portray these things. If you were to read this, you would think that a person who is really in desperate need of help was just murdered by cops. Now, I know that's not what it says, but they pick the words very carefully here 
to make it lost their life at the hands of campus police. Well, you know, oh, uh, okay. So that is that is technically true, but that's a very convoluted way of putting it. Was shot posing a threat to police in a suicide by cop situation would be a more accurate way to write about this, but that's not going to serve the agenda. So that's not how they described it. So I just that really struck me. Um, and then there's also uh, it's unacceptable. This is from Glad as well. Uh, Scout Schultz's pronouns are they, them, theirs. It's unacceptable for reporters to erase their identity while telling their story. I am sorry. Even the New York Times draws the line here. They, theirs is plural. Whether Scout Schultz, rest in peace, uh, was male, female, or intersex, or whatever, it's one person. It's one person. Now it's not even just we have to allow people to pick their descriptions that are in contradiction of reality. We have to change the plain meaning of words to suit people's whims. I want to know where that stops. The answer is it doesn't. It's just more bending the knee. It's more placating the forces of political correctness at the expense of reality. And that is a dangerous, a dangerous path for us to go down. But I, I do want to get speaking of dangerous path is sovereignty, a state's ability to exert power as a state. Very straightforward. Why do people have a problem with it? I will answer that. After the break, to this use of the word sovereign and sovereignty, did you did you hear a buzzword or a dog whistle in in his uh, repeated use of that word? Not not allowed to use sovereignty. Uh, not why? What's wrong? What's wrong with so- a dog whistle? What is the dog? That's Brian Williams, by the way. Who you know, Mister journalism integrity there wow so is there a dog whistle going on there but but he wasn't the only one this notion that sovereignty as a word and i some people might say oh buck what about the sovereign citizens movement look there are a lot of people that have a lot of things you know because there's the the people's democratic republic of north korea doesn't mean the democratic is all of a sudden a term that we should be suspicious of right i mean come on uh well i didn't maybe we'll talk more about north korea later this week i've got some more thoughts on that for you but in the meantime, sovereignty is an issue. This is from Trump's U.N. speech because he spoke about sovereignty and, and, and America first. And what you'll find is that this actually bothers liberals. The notion of America that is not responsive to, quote, international opinion, it annoys liberals. It, it, it makes them feel uneasy. It, it bothers progressives and leftists. They don't want America to just do its thing and protect its people and take care of their interests. They want an America that's actually protecting the interests of the whole world, whatever that means. This notion that there's world opinion, really. I mean, world opinion on what? Who's got that polling data? I mean, it's just it's kind of a nonsense idea, but they like this. They like this uh, position of America as subject to any number of um, internationalist whims. And the moment you get away from that, there's a problem. The moment that you're no longer uh, trying to please the, quote, consensus, international consensus opinion, they they have an issue. And look, I mean, I don't (laughs) 
It's a shame. Every time I want to use the word globalist, the globalist, the Illuminati, you know, Buck Sexton, he is the government. He's a plant. I've seen it coming. I know. I named him. You want me to name names? I'll name them. I'll name names. You know what I'm talking about. I'll name them. Uh, he, he, he has. He has indeed. He's able to find my bio on Wikipedia and make quite a, make quite a show of it. There it is. Rot, rotten plain sight. Buck Sexton. That's a fake. That's a fake name. It's a fake name. God's never been in the field in his life. It's a fake name. The name is real and served in two war zones, unlike said radio host. Side note. But that's cool. Good talk. Good talk. Uh, where was I before I got... Oh, yeah. So globalists. So that's... You know, every time I say globalists, I want to go to this globalism, you know, the Illuminati, the Bilderbergs. Uh, but globalism is is a thing that we could talk about, hopefully, outside of the context of, of a crazy conspiracy theorist. So... Uh, they they have this notion about sovereignty that sovereignty is bad, and you even had uh, the chief national security correspondent over at over at CNN, um, he J- Mr. Jim Shuto, who had the following to say about sovereignty as well. To say the, the, the point Robin highlighted there, the, this idea of sovereignty, that, that's a loaded term. This is a favorite expression of authoritarian leaders from China to Russia to, to African dictatorships. It's about, you know, we all have different values. Don't preach to me about human rights. You've often heard that kind of rhetoric uh, pushing back at America saying, you know, democracy, open society is the way forward. So to hear an American president, that's a real departure from the public comments and really a tenet of U.S. foreign policy. Policy, Democrat and Republican for decades about not just uh, the U.S. as a democratic example, but but supporting democracy abroad. You had a president here say, you know what, we're not going to impose. Sovereignty is a loaded term. I, I, I think this is a fascinating window into the minds of the, the journalist, the elitist journalist class that covers these issues. Because they've been so uh, indoctrinated into these theories of uh, multilateralism and internationalism and the, 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 a world that is really governed first and foremost by the U.N. Uh, that they, as I was saying, they're uncomfortable with the notion of an America that asserts its interests and asserts its ability to pursue those interests despite what the international community thinks. Despite what the International Criminal Court may say or what the public, what the consensus opinion at The Hague may be on, on any particular issue, journalists don't want to hear this. They are not believers in an America that puts its, uh, its own interests above those of all these different entities and bodies that, that come together. And I, I think it was so fascinating. It's a dog whistle. It's a loaded term. Uh well, no, but what is a state if it is not sovereign? If a state doesn't have the ability to exercise its authority within its borders, if a state doesn't have the ability to defend and maintain its borders, then what is it really? You know, I know now that we start to get into some political philosophy one-on-one here, but how can that be a loaded term? And what does that say about the kind of country that many Democrats and Many of the Acela corridor, the opinion making class that largely lives from Boston to Washington, D.C., and mostly from New York City to Washington, D.C., what is a, what is the kind of country that they really want? I think it is one that is willing to subordinate or that 
the leadership, the enlightened leadership, will subordinate the interests of the American people, of you and me, for the benefit of, you know, the rest of the world or other people out there. But you see, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't like that idea. That bothers me. And so I suppose sovereignty is a dog whistle for folks like you and me because the reassertion of an America that is first and foremost concerned with its own people, with its own citizenry, shouldn't be controversial. That it's controversial for anyone who makes a living reporting on this country and following politics and security issues tells us much more about where journalists stand on this than whether or not Donald Trump intended this as some kind of, I don't know what they think it was. Sovereignty, the authority, if you Google it, the authority of a state to govern itself. It's all it means. That, you know, this is like uh, Orwell. In a time of universal uh, deceit, to speak the truth is a revolutionary act. In a time of uh, just sweeping internationalism, And a time of deterioration of Western cultures and Western civilization because of their inability to control borders, their inability to assert sovereignty. The reassertion of sovereignty would seem to be very much needed and something that we as Americans should celebrate. But instead, some are very much put off by it. The globalists. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back, team. We we have uh, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell. I can't. And I've got a seri- I have more serious stuff to talk to you about in a second. But there's a Lawrence O'Donnell uh, video out there. And this is always a reminder. This is why uh, there are a few things you find out in the media world. One is that you, you better be nice to everyone who works for you because otherwise they can get you. And what ends up happening is uh, <laughs> Ty and Amy are like, yep. I'm like, yeah, I, I promise. There'll be nice Christmas gifts this year. Uh, but – it's really important, um, and and that's something that you see time and again. And you have Lawrence O'Donnell, who is an MSNBC guy. I've never done a show. They don't have me on at MSNBC for, for obvious reasons. Fine. I've got uh, – but Lawrence O'Donnell is now out there. There's a video of him where he has what people who do enough TV know you got to avoid, which is the meltdown on the staff, just a total meltdown captured on camera. Staff is all there. And they are, um, uh, you know, they, they they got the video. And I wish I could play, but there's so many curses and we don't have time to, and I would not play curses over the air, of course, but I don't have time to bleep them out right now. But you can just imagine. I mean, he just, he just loses it. And I always think it's so funny. You get all these, uh, these TV talking head types at some of these places, especially I'm talking about now the, the left-wing cable networks that have these people they're just oh they're so so concerned about the middle class and about the oppressed and you know all this stuff and they're just the classic limousine liberals i mean they are so holier than thou on tv and they come off tv and they're just they're they're nasty i mean a, a great example of this was i knew people who had worked for and with keith olbermann in the past and it's unusual to have so many people that are ideologically aligned with somebody say such bad things about them. I mean, said that he was just a, and you're, yeah, you've heard, yeah. I'm not the, I'm not the only one even in the, in the room right now that's like, yup, heard, heard bad things. It just ab- abusive to staff. Absolutely abusive. And yet was paid millions and millions of dollars over at MSNBC and then was paid all that money to be over at 
current TV, and it, and it looked like it was like Wayne's World without the fun. I don't know if you remember that thing. Wayne's World, Wayne's World, party time. I love Wayne's World, by the way. The first Wayne's World is a brilliant movie. Uh, really holds up, I think. The second was a little unfortunate, but, you know, it happens. Um, okay, I was going to talk to you about some more serious, but I just I, I caught myself there looking at this. Um, he's, he's yelling, he's yelling, uh, stop hammering, stop hammering, and lots of, lots of cursing. And now there's a meme I'm seeing on, on Twitter with MC Hammer and MC Hammers uh, dancing around, you know, doing doing some stuff on the meme. And it's just, it's amazing. People are all very, uh, you know, they are uh, really having some fun with this Lawrence O'Donnell thing. So if you haven't gotten a chance to see it, it is not safe to put over the speakers at work, but I do think that you would uh, enjoy enjoy um, watching it, especially if you think that the people over at MSNBC are, by and large, a lot of them are big phonies who don't care about the working class, don't care about the middle class, and have made quite a bit of money uh, with the pretense that they do. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's a real, it's a classic meltdown. It's great. You got to check it out. All right, on to the latest in the, you got two things today in the and I won't spend much time on this. And we've got uh, Stuart Taylor joining us here to talk about the uh, re- the change that uh, Betsy DeVos put in place when it comes to campus sexual assault investigations. So we'll get there in a moment. But there are uh, two things that have two ways the story has advanced today when it comes to uh, the Mueller investigation and when it comes to the other part of this. Right, one of them is that you have. Uh, Mueller apparently casting a very wide net. And that's interesting just in and of itself, because I thought he was really going to focus or we hope that he was just going to focus on this one part of it. And the other is that he or I should say Manafort. There are reports. Now, this is not yet confirmed, but reports that Manafort offered to give special briefings to a Russian billionaire. That's that's the big that's the big bombshell on CNN. That's what they're they're pushing tonight. That's the big story. Now, I will say that to me it doesn't it doesn't strike a, a a chord of oh my gosh, what's what could that possibly and that doesn't freak me out as much as it would people that believe that there was some big collusion thing going on. That said, I can't really particularly explain that other than I think Manafort's I've always thought he was shady, and I've always told you that I thought he was the one that was most likely to face some kind of criminal sanctions or criminal charges. Uh, but Manafort um, is also just, he, he, he's shady, and so he does things that show poor judgment. He does things that are uh, not, in my estimation, uh, not what somebody with not just business sense, but but any hope of protecting their reputation in a public setting would do. Um, and there was a reason the Trump administration uh, tossed him, and they've kept people around for far too long. There were people who made it through the Trump campaign that were pro-Trump and, and helping him during the campaign that made it all the way into the administration and got jobs that, quite honestly, they never should have gotten. So for Manafort to get dumped in the middle of the summer before the election is a red flag. It was a red flag. There was something going on there. And I don't think it was just that he wasn't doing a good enough job because Trump was Trump was the campaign. There was no campaign apparatus. It was Trump, a plane and a Twitter account. That's all he needed. 
But Manafort's uh, supposed offer to do briefings for this Russian billionaire, I don't think it proves collusion. But once again, it's like, Manafort, what what were what were you doing, buddy? Um, and he's got some tough stuff ahead of him, I think. Oh, one more thing. Almost left this out. They're saying that Samantha Power, this is reported on Fox News, was uh, engaging in all kinds of uh, shenanigans to find out stuff about people using uh, intelligence collection. And, you know, at what point does that look shady enough that there's going to be a, a full hearing, a full accounting of it? If those reports are true, do we ever get to find out why the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations uh, is doing all this with the with the unmasking that that everyone's been talking about? Because it seems like there was a lot of it going on. So, look, there's not much that's moving the needle here. The, the, the storyline is not moving forward all that much on on unmasking and on uh, or rather on the investigation. And on the other parts of the Mueller probe, uh, but I, I do think that uh, you know Manafort. It's unfortunate Manafort has become a very useful, uh, very useful cudgel for the Democrats against the Trump administration. I think that's going to continue, and I think it's I think it's probably going to get worse. Um, we're going to talk Hillary's book tour and uh, Obama's speaking tour in the next hour. But first up, we've got uh, Stuart Taylor and the campus rape. Frenzy. He's the author of the Campus Rape Frenzy. Talk about that and more in a few. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. We discussed when it happened the uh, change in guidance, courtesy of Betsy DeVos at the uh, Education Department, when it comes to sexual assault on campus and the guidelines for not just the accuser, but also the rights of the accused. This caused quite a stir among those on the left, but we need to also look at what the future will be here under the Trump administration. Given this shift, we have Stuart Taylor Jr. on the line. He's a nationally acclaimed legal journalist and author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. Stuart, great to have you. Nice to be with you. So in the Wall Street Journal, you and Casey Johnson argued that Education Secretary Betsy DeVos was right, was correct to restore due process rights so that both accusers and accused are treated fairly. Tell us about what what happened here. What was this change and what's some of the background when it comes to sexual assault policy that people need to fairly evaluate this? Well, the change isn't complete yet. I hope Betsy DeVos will follow through and we're waiting for the next shoe to drop. But basically the background is the Obama administration starting in 2011 basically decided for political reasons to gratify their gender warrior uh, base to destroy due process rights for young men accused of rape and sexual assault on campus. Uh, not, this is not the criminal process. To destroy their rights to any kind of a fair hearing, basically presume them guilty, wouldn't allow cross-examination, didn't allow them any of the rights that somebody who's being put on trial for some infamous alleged offense should have. Uh, Betsy DeVos, uh, to her great credit, I think, about two weeks ago in a speech after long study and interviewing uh, people on all sides, uh, rightly denounced that system for the unfair system it was and uh, said that she was going to uh, work toward changing it to a system that's fair both to the accusers and to the accused, both to the women and to the men, unlike the unlike the 
Obama system, which, by the way, is still in place. Betsy DeVos hasn't completed this change yet. The Obama system is loaded, uh, is basically rigged against the accused, which are almost all, all young men. What I'm hoping Betsy DeVos will do, and what she, what she said she's going to do, is a so-called notice-and-comment rulemaking, uh, which is a process of study. It's the right way to do a regulation. The Obama people just issued decrees. A notice-and-comment rulemaking would uh, lead to findings on you know, I would hope on the unfairness of the current system, on its bias against males, and would lead, I hope, to a, a series of specific requirements for any college that wants to uh, put men on trial for what what are called sex crimes. How did the Obama administration uh, use leverage in order, or what leverage did it have in order to get these schools to comply? Was it just a, t- a straight Title IX uh, issue, or, or yeah. how was it that the White House was they- influencing this? They have the power under Title IX, any White House, uh, to issue regulations to enforce Title IX, and if they if there are violations of their regulations, uh, to take federal money away. And all all universities, almost all, depend heavily on federal money. So it's a death sentence to take federal money away to take all of it. Uh, they were threatening, in essence, uh, all the colleges in the country. You'd better do the sexual assault, uh, you know, rigged process the way we tell you to, or we're going to take away your federal money. The other sanction they had was to uh, shower them with terrible publicity by putting them on a list of universities that they said, okay, we've got all these under investigation. There are some 300 on the list. They're all under investigation for, you know, for not uh, protecting victims of sexual assault, which is a you know, a terrible cloud to hang over a university. And the universities basically did exactly what the Obama administration told them to, and a lot of them were happy to do it because they're run by, uh, they're controlled, lots of the bureaucracies, by uh, ardent feminists and gender warriors, uh, many of them. And so, uh, you know, but the combination of the federal pressure and the ideological inclinations of the college administrators and a lot of the professors has led to an extremely unfair system where dozens and dozens of innocent young men have been railroaded out of college and branded as rapists. We're speaking to Stuart Taylor, Jr. He's a uh, acclaimed legal journalist and author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's Universities. Stuart, for those who are listening, what are the kinds of uh, unfair practices that were enshrined into policy as a result of the Obama administration guidance for campus sexual assault policies? Or what are the kinds of things and, and the kinds of situations that uh, almost entirely young men, I'm assuming, faced as a result of this? Yes. Well, um, they would be put in a sort of a trial-type situation. They would be tried before highly biased uh, university bureaucrats, uh, sex bureaucrats, who were hired uh you know with the idea you know that uh, that all men are guilty of these crimes uh these alleged crimes all accused men uh they they report to the federal government so you know the college knows that the federal government is going to hammer them if they don't find enough young men guilty the young men are not given in many cases are not given full information about what the claim is, what the evidence is. They're not allowed to put on their evidence, all their evidence. They're not allowed to cross-examine their accusers or to have them cross-examined by lawyers or by anybody else who's on their side. They're all alone in front of this machine, and the machine grinds right through them. And many of them have gone to court, and some 50-some 50, 50 have now won lawsuits 
or at least have won preliminary motions in lawsuits, uh, charging that their rights were violated. I mean, some of the stories that I've heard, Stuart, include uh, a young woman who was seen uh, roughhousing with, with her boyfriend, and some, a third party reported it. The administration, I think this was at USC, the administration looked into it. She claimed that nothing bad happened. She had no injuries, that it was all a joke, and that, it was, and that she was fine. And the administrators decided that they didn't care that, that sexual misconduct had taken place and there were sanctions against her boyfriend as a result. Uh, I also remember reading about an individual who looked like someone who had uh, sexually assaulted a young woman, and so they banned him from certain parts of campus because he reminded her of her attacker. These are the kinds of things that make people wonder, how is there any fairness in this? It's unbelievable, and there's a case, we lead our book with a case from Amherst College. I went to Amherst, so this hits home. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Basically, what happened in this case, is later proven by text messages, was that the woman either seduced or, depending on how you call it, sexually assaulted the man. He was passed. He was almost passed out, drunk, blackout, drunk, and uh, she was not very drunk. And she initiated a sexual act with him. It wasn't sexual intercourse, but it was a sexual act, and did it while he was kind of lying there, more or less unresponsive. And uh, and then later she got worried that she was people were going to be mad at her because this was her roommate's boyfriend, who she took advantage of. And so she put out the story that he had forced her to do it. Eventually, she made a complaint to the college that he had forced her to do it. The college whipped up a quick kangaroo court, uh, didn't give him a fair chance to prove his innocence, didn't make any effort to find the text messages. She lied in testimony uh, about the text messages, and they knew she was lying, and they kicked him out. Now, he recently won some kind of a settlement. He sued, and he won some kind of a settlement, but it's very... You know, it's not much consolation, frankly, uh, an after-the-fact court victory uh, when you've been railroaded out of college as a rapist. Just one more for you, Stuart. What do you think is the mentality, or, or to the degree you're willing to try and explain, explain and analyze, there are journalists, including so-called legal experts, who go on various uh, cable and, and other networks, and they'll say that that this is uh, that, that the Betsy DeVos regulations are um, helping with rape culture, Meaning that you know, they're 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 letting rape culture flourish, which I don't even think rape culture is a thing, but nonetheless, uh, and they will take this perspective that what the Obama administration did and the lack of protections for the accused that it resulted in on these campuses was somehow justified. Is this just is it, is it virtue signaling from the left? Is it what do you think the mentality? Some combination is? of ideological extremism and virtue signaling. Whether they really believe that almost all men accused men are guilty and that women never lie. Uh, whether they actually believe that, I'm not sure. I imagine a lot of them do believe it. But that's the premise on which they operate. And it's basically guilty until, pro- you know, you're guilty until proven innocent and you don't get a chance to prove yourself innocent. These are extremists and, uh, and they basically think the rights of accused men are not worth protecting. And all women should, any woman should be able to destroy any man she chooses to destroy by making a false accusation. Well, we'll see if Betsy DeVos follows through, and we'll have you back on when we know. Stuart Taylor is the author of The Campus Rape Frenzy, The Attack on Due Process at America's University. Stuart, we appreciate your time today. Thanks very much. Team, we are going to be talking, uh, coming up here in just a few minutes, about Hillary's book tour and Obama's speaking tour. Stay with me. But wait. 
wait a second. It must not have been easy. No. It must not have been easy to write this book. It, it wasn't easy. I mean, it was painful. It was horrible reliving it and, you know, being as candid, open as I could be about the mistakes I made and talking about those, but also trying to come to grips, as I write in the book, about everything from, you know, sexism and misogyny to voter suppression mm -hmm. uh, to the unusual behavior of the former director of the FBI and the Russians and the Russians. And you have been... What happened was the Russians. There you have Hillary on the Colbert Rapport last night. And uh, look, there's no there's no surprise here at all. She's getting uh, the rock star treatment from all of the because I'm a rock star uh, from all of the different talk show hosts and uh, you know people out there that want to have well continue to have big media careers and get paid a lot of money for jobs that lots of other people could do and in many cases do much better than they're doing. Our comedians have really abandoned their posts uh, largely in this country where you have now Jimmy Kimmel thinks he's a pundit, Stephen Colbert thinks he's a pundit. They're actually supposed to make people laugh, but that requires skill and it's hard. It's much easier to just be an ignoramus who bows to the uh, political power of Hillary Clinton and the Democrat media and apparatus with her. Uh, so I am, and as I say that, I have to be completely frank with you, so, yeah, I'm reading what happened. What happened? I'm, I'm reading it now because I have to because this is what I do. Opposition research. It's why I'm also reading the Antifa book. It's why I spend so much time uh, looking at what the left wing Twitter sphere has to say. It's so that I understand their arguments and I can bring you the best information possible and equip you with whatever I can to win the argument if you get into one, uh, or just to know that you're right and to be able to back it up with all of the relevant facts. So uh, Hillary's book has sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It's doing very well. I, I can't pretend that it's not. It's the biggest nonfiction book opening in five years. Isn't it amazing that for once Hillary had to be a loser to win something. She's gotten overpaid for so many books by these big publishing companies because it's a prestige thing. You publish Hillary Clinton and you're part of the fancy cool person club. So this time around, Hillary, after I think I have to check the number, over a dozen books have been published by Hillary Clinton. She doesn't write them, though. What do you mean I don't write them? No, she doesn't write them. She's too busy doing yoga. <laughs> One nostril breathing. She's too busy doing that to spend her time actually uh, sweating at a keyboard trying to find a way to explain her incredible loss to Democrats and to the leftist media. But what I was saying earlier this week, I am more convinced of it than ever that she is going to become a media figure. This is the next act for her. And with Trump in office now, you can see that much of the media feels like now there's really no difference between media and politics, uh, that they are one and the same, and that if you become incredibly powerful in one arena, that translates quite easily into the other. So Hillary Clinton will take whatever her name recognition and the political, you know, the political power that she has and will translate that into being a force for the Democrats in the media. This keeps her in the spotlight, which is what 
she wants, and she's not going away. I'm here forever! Yay! And is going to be somebody that you're hearing from for the foreseeable future. I would also say that she's offering up, and this was told to me by one of my secret Manhattan-based conservative uh, advisors, because I don't like, I can't out my fellow conservatives here in Manhattan, but I have people that I talk to and, and are my sounding boards on this, and one of them said to me, she's going to be an alternative presidency for a lot of folks, because I know that she's, Hillary's not the uh, inspiring candidate for the left progressive base that Bernie Sanders was. I inspire, baby. You know how I roll, Bernie style. But she is for the uh, for this stone-faced, humorless, feminist contingent of the Democrat Party. She is still the candidate that they wish they could have had. And she will give them an opportunity, uh, I believe, by being a media figure, to provide what the show The West Wing was during the Bush years, which is an alternative presidency. Hillary is going to be a kind of media-enabled president in exile, though she's not going to be going anywhere, unfortunately. Uh, she's just going to be hanging around and popping up on TV a lot. But I think you got a, a, a bit of a preview of that last night when she was asked by Colbert, as if we need to hear this from Hillary Clinton, she was asked by Colbert, what would you have said at the U.N. instead of what Trump said. Here's what she here's how she's responded. What I'd hope the president would have said was something along the lines of, you know, we view this as dangerous to our allies, to the region and even to our country. We call on all nations to work with us to try to end the threat posed by Kim Jong Un. Now, this is a perfect example of what I often talk to you about with regard to Hillary and other Democrat politicians. We've been so conditioned, we've been so convinced to think that she's a genius, that, that she's brilliant, that she is so uh, skilled at thinking about complex problems. There's actually no evidence of that whatsoever. There's no policy matter that you can point to when it comes to her time as Secretary of State under the Obama administration, where she was really impressive on a complicated policy matter. I, I can't think of one. I don't have one for you. So... Let's put that aside. And then you look at her dealings in health care when she was first lady under Bill Clinton's time in office. I mean, let's be honest, she messed that up real bad. And then you had her time as a senator in New York where she was just conventional, just doing everything that a Democrat senator from New York would be expected to do. But the narrative around her has always been that she's so brilliant. She's so hardworking. She's so... Uh, deep when it comes to knowledge on important and intricate policy matters, and there's just no evidence for it. What she just said there, I would have said, work together. And work. I mean, that's the. This is like what I would expect an eighth grader at a model UN uh, event to say and get some applause from a teacher who's being a little bit too kind. Uh, what she said there wasn't insightful. This is the. This was true of Obama as well. Obama would say the most obvious stuff. You know, you know, if we're gonna, we're gonna deal with uh, difficult negotiations. It's going to be difficult, and there's going to be a negotiation on the other side, and uh, and uh, negotiation is going to be hard because it's hard to negotiate. And people would say, "Oh, do you hear Obama 
He's so amazing, the way he talks about those difficult negotiations with Iran. He recognizes that they are difficult, and they are negotiations. This is, uh, this is true of Hillary Clinton as well. She does something that's very straightforward, very simple, and is praised for it like she's some kind of genius. And it's just frustrating, I think, for the rest of us who are trying to look at this objectively. And, you know, I don't sit around here telling you that everything that Trump utters is some kind of modern-day Cicero moment. Uh, He speaks plainly. He speaks openly on things that are clouded in diplomatic bureaucraties, which is refreshing. But sometimes he says stuff that I'm like, well, that wasn't particularly well-worded or that that wasn't the most nuanced approach. He does that a lot, but that's okay. I don't pretend that the, that the opposite is true, though. I don't pretend that everything that Trump says is the, the most brilliant thing to have ever been uh, stated by a politician. With, with Hillary, with Obama, oh, it's amazing. You'll notice the crowd there cheering Hillary saying the most bland and obvious uh, talking points imaginable from the U.N. But what happened was, I mean, it's just, and she's just not capable of reaching out and and being uh, an inspiring person, despite all of the praise from the media, the enormous fortune that she amassed, the easiest stuff imaginable. I mean, I, look, I can tell you this. The real, the real gig that everyone wants, whether you're in media or politics, is to get paid a lot of money to give speeches. Uh, you show up, it's a prepared speech, you do it, you get a lot of money. I mean, that's the best, easiest money you can get. That's really the top of the, of the financial desires pyramid for, look, for people in media, for people all over the place in politics. When they get out, the first thing they want to do. But with Hillary, it was at a level that will never be replicated because it wasn't just speeches. It was selling influence. It was peddling influence. It was selling access to the Clinton Foundation. But she's become incredibly wealthy. She has been feted. She has been celebrated by the media for such a long time. And Oh, she was the victim for a while. And then she's the, you know, here I am woman, hear me roar. And she's breaking glass ceilings and all this stuff. And, and it just never worked. There's all these different iterations of it because ultimately... Unless you're able to be brainwashed by that propaganda, you see her for what she is. An amoral, grasping, dishonest, self-righteous, solipsistic, meaning she thinks she's the center of the universe, uh, deeply flawed person. That's what she is. Now, I'm reading her book because I have to. She has to! And I know that my Hillary impression is increasingly sounding like a parrot. But... I think it's accurate enough for our purposes. So I'll let you know what I think of this What Happened book now that I'm going to dive into it and uh, rip through it in the next few days. And yes, I suppose I am I, I am contributing to, I, I am funding the Clinton empire with, with my dollars on Kindle here, but there's no way around it. Oppo research has got to get done. Uh, but that's the latest on Hillary. The book is hundreds of thousands of copies sold. So people apparently do want to know what happened. I want to be clear, we're not, we're not trying to push financial reform uh, because we begrudge success that's fairly earned. I mean, I, I do think at a certain point you've made enough money. At a certain point, you've made enough money. So there's the other Democrat president in exile, if you believe the media's approach to these things and you, you take their word for it. Because remember, 
they think that Donald Trump is illegitimate. And so Hillary is therefore the legitimate president and Obama is more legitimate than Trump. You have President uh, Obama, former, pardon me, former President Obama there talking uh, about how, and this was years ago, you may recall that Obama was always the class warrior and talking about redistributing the wealth and how the rich need to pay more. People need to, quote, pay their fair share and pay their fair share. And you certainly recall that that was unfortunately all too effective for him as a politician. But as we see time and again, uh, politicians in the Democrat Party aren't held to the standards that they want to hold the rest of us to. Uh, It is now coming out once again. This was reported many months ago, but that Obama is is going to be giving a speech or gave a speech. I don't even know which it was this week where he'll be getting paid about 400 grand to give a speech to a Wall Street firm. He's giving speeches to companies in the financial sector, the very companies that he used to deride, in fact, as fat cats. Remember this? I did not run for office to be helping out a bunch of uh, you know, fat cat bankers on Wall Street. But now he doesn't have to convince the commentariat over at MSNBC or anywhere else for that matter that he is a man for the underclass, that he's someone who is fighting for the working man, the common man, and woman, uh, that pretense can go away. Now Obama can fully embrace a, a celebrity status. And I think that as we continue to uh, see the Democrats scrambling for a, a, a leader of the party, they don't really have one. I don't think it's going to be Chuck Schumer, and I don't think it's going to be Nancy Pelosi. I don't think either of them are likely to be a presidential candidate anytime. So they're trying to figure out who's going to be next. In the meantime, they have Obama and Hillary both speaking from positions of private life, but very much in the public eye. And this is going to be uh, interesting to watch this play out with Obama in particular, because you're going to see a former president that is more involved, I think, in the conversation Uh, for the next presidency and for politics in between uh, than any president in modern history. Uh, Obama is still on the left, a superstar, and that's why they will in no way, shape or form hold him to account for doing exactly what I should note they did give Hillary a hard time for, which was giving speeches to Wall Street. The Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrat Party uh, the, the progressives within the Democrat Party, the true socialist progressives, they they were at the time, at least perfectly willing to point out that Hillary was given speeches, that she was going around and selling her time to uh, the highest bidder. Uh, I think there were some speeches that were in the three or four hundred thousand dollar range for Hillary. I mean, Bill was getting as much as eight hundred thousand dollars a speech. But when you run a giant influence peddling scheme, we can expect that the fees will go higher. But they had problems with Hillary over this. They were annoyed with what was clear hypocrisy on her part. I'm going to go out on a limb here and bet that you're never going to hear any criticism of Obama really for doing this, that now that it doesn't help him 
to uh, beat up on Wall Street or at least pretend to. Now that he can give up that charade, no, no one's going to uh, hold him to account for it. And I just think that this is one of the defining characteristics of the modern Democrat Party and, and the progressive ideology that currently uh, motivates and mobilizes it. And that is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of the most widespread failings you'll see on the American left. And it is embraced, really, they because they always talk about collective action. So the actions of an individual can't really matter all that much. So, you know, Obama can go out there and talking about paying your fair share and talk about how Wall Street fat cats make too much money. But that's all so that he can then get legislation passed or push for legislation while he's president that will have higher taxes on high earners, that will redistribute the wealth, that in his own life, he's going to conduct himself as though Wall Street is great and they're good buddies. And and we should also note he got more money from Wall Street than any previous candidate in history as a president. So this notion that he was a foe of Wall Street was always a lie. It was always a myth. But that there's a hypocrisy at work here isn't going to bother a vast majority of those on the left. You're not going to see Democrats that are particularly upset about this, because whether the issue is finance or taxes or climate change, it's not about what any one person does. It's about forcing every other person to do it. And this is part of the virtue signaling ethic of the Democrat Party. Uh, This is why you can have Al Gore pushing for all this climate change legislation and and taking private jets everywhere. They don't run away from this. The hypocrisy is too obvious now. They're not going to claim, for example, that Al Gore doesn't fly on private jets. They're not going to claim that, you know, Hillary, well, Hillary, they have a tough time with because she's a loser and she didn't get it done for them. Uh, But with Obama, they're going to give him a pass on speaking. Remember, he's not just speaking for 400 grand. He's speaking at Wall Street events for 400 grand. And he's somebody who used to talk about uh, how you can, as I played for you, the audio, you can make enough money. You don't need to make more money. Obama's already worth tens of millions of dollars. Does he really need to be giving speeches for $400,000 a pop to Wall Street firms? Does he really need to be fabulously wealthy beyond already being fabulously wealthy? I just wonder. His whole mentality of needing to give more to the or have more taken from you by the government so you can give more the government can give more to people who did not earn it uh that doesn't seem to in any way manifest itself in his approach where he's making uh, you know you could say oh buck well maybe he'll give some portion away to charity okay fine but if wall street was really all about exploiting people and fat cats and hurting main street as obama said for eight years then does he really have to show up at their events now and take big checks from them Of course, the answer is no, it's hypocritical, but they'll give him a pass because with Democrats, it is always do as they say, not as they do. Hitting a quick break, your team will be right back. Hey, team, it's Buck. I know we haven't gotten into this uh, earlier on the show, um, even though I'm watching it very closely and no doubt you're seeing this all across various news sites. There is a very serious hurricane, a Category 4 that is currently hitting Puerto Rico. It's also hit some smaller islands in the Caribbean. And Puerto Rico has been plunged into darkness. There is a blackout that is affecting uh, essentially the entire island. And this is U.S. territory. So we have a few million 
of our fellow Americans who are in a very dangerous storm situation there and have been plunged into uh, the darkness of a blackout. So clearly very concerning and uh, something that we'll be watching from a news perspective and our thoughts and prayers go to the people of uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, Same can be said for Mexico City, which is recovering right now from a major earthquake. And the the scenes of devastation there are really tough uh, to look at. You, You have entire buildings collapsing. You have emergency crews working feverishly to try and uh, get people who are trapped under the rubble out while there's still time. I know the death toll there is around 100 reported, and it's going to go higher as they uh, go into areas of Mexico City where the building code isn't a thing that people care much about or that builders care about. And so there are some structures that have collapsed entirely and it's just it's just a gut punch. You watch this and you realize that this could happen anywhere to any of us. I, I can't help but just uh, think out loud about how Mother Nature has been teaching uh, all of us uh, a lesson in, in humility recently. And the storm systems that have hit us, the hurricanes, uh, these go to show that even in our era of incredible technology and and innovation and our ability to in so many ways tame the environment around us when when mother nature uh, unleashes her wrath uh, there are going to be consequences and there's really nothing we can do to uh, be completely safe from these situations and it just is a luck of the draw Uh, whether your area gets hit by a hurricane, tornado, uh, tidal wave, any number of natural uh, disasters that have been befalling us since the dawn of mankind. So I I haven't spent much time on it on the show today because, well, I just don't have much to add to what's going on other than the ongoing news coverage. And and as we have more on this, I'll, I'll certainly share with you updates about it. But it is really troubling and uh, i wish that there were some ways that we could uh, better prepare for these situations whether it's houston or florida or puerto rico or mexico city all these places louisiana i know has been hit really badly recently and uh, the politicization that happens after these events i i would like to think that these would always be moments where we come together as as a people as human beings and just see a lot of the best in each other and are uh, automatically in a, in a, a team formation against the elements, you know, that we're all just trying to keep each other safe and alive and, and protect our homes and, and possessions to the degree that we can as well. But sure enough, there are all these people out there who are not in any way uh, scientifically qualified to talk about anything but they see this, they see this misery, they see the disasters, they see the destruction as an opportunity to push an agenda. And I just wish that there was less of a, um, of a knee-jerk reaction among so many. And it's, it's particularly strong among the left, let's be honest. I'm sure there are some right-wingers out there who have things to say about natural disasters, too, that aren't helpful and that I would uh, wish they would just shut up about but on the left the stuff about climate change so what are we to think that climate change is also 
causing earthquakes? Is that is that the next tier of discussion we can expect? Because the evidence for climate change causing earthquakes is about as strong as the evidence for climate change causing hurricanes, which is to say that it's not a reasonable position, but people take it all the time. And you also see that there's a disconnect that progressives and and leftists have a disconnect from the suffering of those that are affected by this insofar as one, and this was really uh, jaw dropping, they were making comments about how a flood in Houston was somehow tied into Houston being conservative and global warming deniers. Meanwhile, Houston goes Democrat, and that's just a crazy way to think about natural disasters, no matter what. I don't care what the politics of any area are. These are people. They need our help, and they're, they're our people. And it's just uh, it's really disappointing, honestly, when you see that there are other Americans who, and I mean people with platforms and people that have followings, not just random angry commenters on the Internet, There are people that um, aren't able to just see the sympathy and the desire to help and all of that that comes naturally to us or to most of us when something terrible happens to people through no fault of their own, which is always the case in a natural disaster. Uh, That sympathetic urge can be so easily overridden on the left by the desire to make some political point. So it's, it's less important to focus on Uh, from a a news and commentary perspective for some people, I'm not saying for everybody, but for some people out there, less important to focus on the devastation so that people know how serious it is, so there's more of an impetus to help, and also the government and private sector resources can be better arrayed to assist those in need. That's somehow less important than to some people, to some progressives, than making sure that they can whine on about global warming or climate change. I never even heard somebody try to explain openly why we were just supposed to switch from global warming to climate change without any without any real explanation of this, without a real public hearing on it. It just happened. But here I am talking politics, and I, I just wanted to I just wanted to focus for a few moments on uh, what's going on here in uh, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean, and it could make landfall in the mainland U.S. Who knows? And it's just a reminder that. Uh, luck plays a huge part in everything in our lives. It really does. Um, you just never know. And as advanced as we are and as much as we've overcome so much of the environment around us and life expectancies are longer than ever before and we live in a, in a time of abundance and safety that would have been unthinkable, absolutely unthinkable, even a few hundred years ago, uh, there are still these incidents, these moments where we are reminded that uh, life is, in fact, fragile, that civilization itself is largely in agreement and uh, has its own weaknesses and its own fragility. And this is why people pray, and this is why people understand that there's more than just the day-to-day that they should be focused on. Um, All right, I'm going to run to a break here, team. We'll close out the show in a few. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. I'm very excited. Tonight I get to hang out with my uh, parents and my little sister. We're going to go out on the town and actually get dinner in New York City. This is about as, as social as I tend to get, other than saying hello to my neighbors in the hallway and talking to people that I work with. But, you know, I've, I've been making a, a real push. I'll, I'll be out at dinner tonight, so I'll, I'll be on um, lax regulations for myself. 
I've been making a, a push to get healthy, mostly because uh, the stuff that uh, Miss Molly gave me uh, for my birthday last year and some of the clothing and uh, that it, it's been a little snug. Uh, it's getting, getting a little little tight, you know. I've been wanting to uh, undo the top button when I sit down to eat dinner sometimes. So as I've been mentioning to you, I'm not yet ready to fully embrace dad bod uh, because I'm not a dad yet. So once that happens, I'm going to be going dad bod in full effect. But, you know, you get back into the gym and, you know, I don't know, I'm sure many of you have had the same experience. Those first couple of times back when you realize that, that, it's, that it's on now, like it's for real, it hurts so much. <laughs> it's so much more difficult than it's supposed to be. Because, yeah, sure, I mean, I've been going, right? I've been going to the gym, but I've been going in the way that you go and it's almost like you're doing yoga with weights, although I don't like yoga. I've, I've been trying to teach myself and do some positions and I'm like, this is just not for me. Uh, maybe that'll change one day. Uh, yoga is not really for me. I tried meditation. That's not really for me. Uh, reading old history books, that relaxes my mind and makes me happy. So that's my version of meditation, I guess. But I, I've been trying to get back into the gym and do it for real. Like I've been going but I'm not going to lie, I've been, you know, spent a little time on the elliptical. You can watch TV on the elliptical, and that's all well and good. It's certainly better than nothing. But now I've done the whole set up a circuit, uh, focus on going until failure, do different, you know, focus on different body parts in the circuit and keep... And man, it's brutal. It hurts. Like, I just wish that there was a way to skip those initial phases where your body's like, you're so out of shape. You're so out of shape. Like it's screaming at you when you're trying to do some of these things. And, and then your mind starts to play games on you too. My mind starts to say like, Buck, what, what do you, come on, man. You do, you do radio. What, what, what is this? What is, oh, you need to do a plank. Oh, because you need to work on your abs. Like who cares, right? I, I just don't want to have to get a new wardrobe. I can't afford it. So I, I need to, uh, to stop the advance of the belly. Hey, it's my huge belly. Hey, it's my giant belly. This reminds me. I had a character named Angus McManus we used to do on uh, the Buck Saxton show at The Blaze. And I think I should probably bring him back. And I've been promising commie bear forever. And people are now going to the website and they're saying, what is, why do you have some weird Soviet bear on BuckSaxton.com? And I'm like, look, well, it'll, it'll happen. We'll get there. It's just that he's when you're dealing with a, a relic from the Cold War, um, who is also uh, ursine and uh, can be ornery, it's difficult to get Kami Bear to come along for the ride. And some of you listening are like, what the heck is this kid talking about? You'll see. Just keep downloading the show or keep listening to it live wherever you are, and you'll eventually become acquainted with the little Marxist uh, mammal, uh, Kami Bear. But back to the uh, trials and tribulations of trying to get you know, trying to trying to drop a few because I've I've been steering into a dad bod territory recently, and then you start reading about how you need to do your own food. So I will say that there are some you need to cook your own food because if you order in, I mean you're always going to get the fries, right? This is America. When someone's like, "You get fries with that," you're going to say, "Well, I would like to have a salad instead." No, I don't think so. Plus, the salad they send you as a side salad is always like this little. You know, it looks like like somebody pulled something out of the back of a lawnmower and put it on your plate, right? It's never appetizing. There's no the side salad never has. Uh, well, croutons have gluten in them, but it's never like Parmesan shavings. There's nothing exciting in that side salad. It's like mulch. So 
I don't tend to get very excited about that. Uh, I'm and, and French fries are right up there. Uh, second, really, only to chocolate, I think, for my weaknesses. I think it's chocolate, french fries, and then different kinds of cheese. That's where I really fall apart. And all of a sudden, the willpower, you know, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. The angel's like, but come on, like, it's better for your health. The devil's like, dude, it's double cream brie. Come on. And the brie, the brie voice often wins. Uh, but I've been trying to get into doing, uh, this is one of the reasons why I've been cooking more recently. It's because I want to make, it's really food prep so that I can make more food for myself and not just be like, I'm going to order Thai food. You know, it's like 10 bucks and it's great. And I mean, Pad Thai tastes amazing, but it is not exactly what you want to be eating if you're trying to get back into fighting shape. So I got, and this is what I really want to tell you about. I got a slow cooker and Miss Molly and I used it for the first time yesterday. This thing is amazing. It's like magic. It's this big tub that you plug into a wall. You have, like, two different dial speeds that you can go to, like, hot and not so hot. And you just leave it in there for hours. And then you come come back when you're done, three hours, four hours, whatever. And it's just perfectly cooked and moist meat. We just did a, a simple chicken dish. You know, just we really, it wasn't even a dish. It was just chicken that we let with some uh, seasoning and some spices and some chicken stock. And it, we threw that on a salad, and it was amazing. So I'm excited for this because one of the great a, a one of the great uh, advantages of my time when I was at the Blaze, going back and forth from New York to Dallas, Dallas to New York, was whenever I'm in Dallas, I'd obviously try to sample some of the barbecue, and I would do this with with frequency. And so I would uh, go to Hard Eight outside of Dallas, and I never made it to Pecan Lodge, which was upsetting. And, one day I'm hoping to just be able to travel to all the different great, uh, the, the great meccas, if you will, of barbecue and, uh, and visit the different regional cuisines or regional variations on barbecue. So I really know because I think Texas is the only one that I've had any uh, good experience uh, or, or a good amount of experience with. Um, but I used to be able to do barbecue when I go down to Dallas to visit Glenn and the whole team down in Dallas for the blaze. And now, that's right, I'm going to be a Yankee who's making his own barbecue because a slow cooker, and I know some of you are like, Buck, no, it doesn't count. You don't have a smoker. You don't have a, I don't even know, like a, a pit where you coal in it or something. I don't even know how you're supposed to do this, right? Because in New York, it's, this isn't really the way that it goes. But you can, in fact, make pretty good, pretty good, I'm told, barbecue using a slow cooker. And so I'm going to be experimenting with this now. Um, I, I think I'm going to have to post some like Buck Does Cooking videos on Facebook just so I talk about this stuff on radio. And for those of you who care or don't care, I don't know, uh, may, maybe I'll put the videos up. I mean, I do make the best scrambled eggs in the world. I may have made uh, scrambled eggs this morning on a, on a corn cake that was phenomenal. Um, but I'm, I'm going to start doing barbecue. So the, I know a lot of you come from regions of the country where barbecue is an art form. If you have any tips for me on the sauce, which doesn't need, I think, coal and open flame, fire, all that stuff, um, or if you have tips for slow cooker barbecue, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Send them my way. And if I if I use one, uh, I will certainly give you credit on air and maybe even post some photos of the, uh, of the end result. But a slow cooker is pretty awesome. Never used one before, never had one before, and it's exciting. And this is all 
spurred on by me wanting to make my own food so that I don't have to be reliant on delivery and takeout, which in New York tends to be really uh, yummy and then gives you heartburn and you realize you've ingested like 1,500 calories that you didn't need to. But I digress. So I'll have updates for you on my barbecue cooking and also single-leg lunges, such a simple exercise, but if you do them enough, they're so painful. Uh, so and and planks, it's just yeah. I really want to feel like I'm uh, strapped into some kind of a torture device on the ground with a plank. Anyway, it's it's terrible. Um, but I'll give you updates on that. But slow cooker, yay! Slow cooker so far, awesome. And I could definitely use some tips on uh, how to use the slow cooker. So let me know. And with that team, I'm going to be closing out the show. Uh, I'm going to go hang out with my folks, my little sis. Uh, very exciting to get some time with them. Please do send me your thoughts, whether it's recipes for the, for barbecue or just anything else you got on your mind. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton is a bla- uh, great place to do that. We will also have on the show uh, on Friday, Team Buck Speaks. And uh, please do share the podcast with a friend. It really does help. And I love hearing that people have spread the word about uh, Buck Sexton with America Now as much as they can. So it's a big help, and it is really, really appreciated. I'll be hanging with you guys tomorrow. Until then, shield tie.